good afternoon and thank you once again for joining me for Business, the Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in our program, we'll have a look at a Harvard Business Review tip. Today's one, uh, the trick to reading a book a week. Very useful information there. We're also talking with Christina Garakaitis about making your brainstorming work. But right now, we're going to cross over to Baker Love Lawyers, have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, And a very important subject, I think, copyright law. So uh, just as a bit of refresher for our listeners, uh, going back to some of the basics, what is copyright? So copyright is a form of what's called intellectual property, which I think we've spoken about on your show before. And it can be best described like this. So someone has used their mind or their labor to create an original piece of work. So that can be, say, the contents of a book or song lyrics and even things like databases and computer programs. But there is an important distinction, Julian. So copyright protects the form of expression of an idea, not the actual idea itself. So I could say take a photo of a vase of flowers and whilst it would probably be a fairly average photo, I'm not known for my photography skills, um, I may retain copyright in that image even though I don't actually own the vase and didn't make the vase. But if that object, say, belongs to someone else and, say, if it's on display on a private property, say, in a home or a museum or something like that, then I would need permission if I wanted to use that image commercially. So it's really important for business owners and everyone um, to be mindful of copyright laws and be aware of things like licensing requirements and fees. Uh, to use somebody else's copyright work. Otherwise, they might find themselves in a breach situation and in a bit of trouble. So you've mentioned things like images and and data. Is there other things covered by copyright? Yes, there there are lots of things, really. So like I mentioned, um, things like literary work, so books, poetry, um, dramatic work, so things like plays, um, song lyrics, obviously, you know, and there's lots of... um, of information out there in relation to copyright of songs and, mm. and other sort of um, things in that area. Artistic works like paintings, photos, blueprints for buildings, even things like emails. Um, so what people may not know, the content doesn't have to be, you know, particularly wonderful or inventive. Just the fact of creating or drafting the content gives copyright protection. Although there is a little bit of extra there, you know, the work does have to satisfy what's called the test of originality. So the end product must be um, of the creator's own intellectual effort and not copied from another person's work. Um, So there's even special copyright protection in the Copyright Act here in Australia for things like uh, sound recordings, so films, um, radio, television broadcasts. So the the legislation is quite broad. Um, So, for example, in the context of radio, you know, a radio broadcast will be owned generally by the broadcaster, so the station on which it was aired, Mm. but the underlying sound recording might be owned by somebody else. Uh, Another area that might be of interest, things like, say, if somebody finds a slogan online um, and wants to print it and use it on a T-shirt, say, um, you know, they're can be issues there in terms of who owns the copyright. So generally, if you didn't create that slogan or that image, then you'll need permission from the owner of that slogan or image. Um, you know, because say if it's a quote, for example, that could be a substantial part of somebody else's literary work. Um, so you, you can't just have that free use there. But 
do. Say if you've got an existing brand or a slogan that may be out of copyright protection or doesn't have copyright protection, there still could be issues there, say, in relation to a registered trademark or things to do with competition and consumer law and that sort of thing. So you do need to tread carefully. And, of course, with the internet uh, coming along these days, let's talk about some things that are happening with images online and the types of things that's happening there. Yeah, so some of your listeners might be aware of um, an international company, and it's a very large one, I won't name names, but this company collects and um, curates a lot of online images and video footage. So they're basically the curator for lots of... um, intellectual property that might belong to others, but they you know, pay a fee to use that. Uh, anyway, it's a bit of a thing that's been going on uh, in the US within the last couple of years, but now we're finding it's made its way to Australia, and I'm actually aware of some local cases about this issue, and what this company does, they send a mass amount of you know, what's called cease and desist letters to individuals um, demanding you know, what could be considered an exorbitant amount of money for stock photographs and images, etc., that they claim people are using without their consent. So um, they allege copyright infringement, and they hope, I guess, that people will be frightened by that correspondence and just pay the money. Um, But there was actually a case in the US where this large company sent a letter of demand to a photographer um, who had actually used one of her own images on her website. So she was the photographer who actually took that photo in the first place, but she received one of these letters and she ended up suing that company for you know, a billion dollars for mm. gross misuse of thousands of her own images. And, but that's where arguments about you know, public domain and freely accessible info and images came in. So it, mm. it really is a bit of a legal minefield in relation to online content and images. So getting back to uh, that particular example, who does actually own the intellectual property? Yeah, so it depends, Julian, on the circumstances giving rise to the creation of the intellectual property and also the type of subject matter. So the general answer, though, is the creator or the inventor of the material. Um, But there can often be some layers of difficulty there. So like I said, you know, with radio broadcasting, um, another example, say with a music track, you know, the composer who wrote the music might own the copyright in the musical works, but then you might have a lyricist who owns the lyrical copyright in the literary work and then you've got the artist who might perform that work um, in a live performance so they can own the copyright in the sound recording Um, and then you might have a recording company involved as well. So it can get really complicated in terms of layers of of ownership. Another issue just on that that might arise is in relation to copyright in the employment law context. So, you know, you might have a company designing images or doing drawings, etc., Um, and you've got an an employee doing that work. They're doing the designing and the drafting. So the general position is there that any intellectual property created by the employee, provided it's in the course of their employment, and that's in inverted commas, it then belongs or vests in the employer. Mm. Um, and, And also there, you've also got issues with permission options. So licensing can come into place in relation to using somebody else's copyright for a fee, um, and issues like royalty fees and fair dealing, etc. So it is a tricky area. So just going back to the online content, what steps could people take to try and ward off any problems in that area? Yeah, so I think firstly people need to do 
what can maybe be described as a bit of an IP audit. So an intellectual property audit in relation to their websites and any other sort of online content. And I think I've spoken about that on your show before. Mm. So people need to see, all right, what do they have on their websites and what do they have on their RSS feeds, for example. So a lot of real-life examples I'm hearing about, people say, well, I didn't know this image was on my website or I haven't even seen this image because my web developer put it up. But that's not a defence because generally the end user is responsible and ignorance you know most definitely isn't bliss in this area so really you need to identify and record your intellectual property assets so that you can manage and protect them you can't do that without first identifying them and then determine the origin and the legal ownership of each piece of of intellectual property so if you've got lots of images on your website you check you know that you have legal right to use them if you're not the owner and if you're you're not the owner, then you should be looking at licensing fees, etc., so that you don't fall foul of the laws. And if you are the owner of the copyright, so if you have created an original work or image, etc., then take measures to protect that image. Um, so you can put a copyright notice on your image or any documents. So setting out that you're the owner and put a date there and, and state, you know, that the works or the image can't be reproduced without permission. Um, because there are no formal steps in relation to registration for copyright in Mm. Australia, not like trademarks or registered designs. So, um, you know, there really needs to be that sort of claim for ownership. The moment an idea or creative concept or image is documented, whether it's on paper or electronically, it's automatically protected by copyright generally. So you don't even need to put that little letter C in a circle after it to have protection, but it can be a good idea to put that there just to show people that the work is subject to copyright. Well, thanks very much for your time again, Rebecca. We'll have a chat with you again another time. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love Lawyers. Yes, very cha- challenging area of law copyright and uh, certainly being contravened a lot on the internet at the moment. Time to pop over to our Minute on Innovation with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. What a great voice. Me or, or Dusty's? Oh, both. <laughs> both. Both of you, of course. <laughs> let's talk about making your brainstorming work. Oh, yes, let's. So I've read an article this week on why brainstorming was a bad thing. And there's a, there's a lot of people that like to discuss the pros and cons about brainstorming. But this particular article said, forget brainstorming. If you want to solve a problem, get people to solve the problem on their own. Um, convergent thinking is the best way to solve a problem, at which point I felt the hairs on the back of my neck raise because that is so totally against um, the practices and the beliefs um, and the things that I've actually seen in motion. Yeah, that's right. So divergent thinking, as we both know, is the best way to get the best solutions to problems. Brainstorming in itself may not be the best way to get there in the traditional sense. So um, I don't know um, the the techniques that you use, and I'm sure that they're quite innovative and they're the traditional brainstorming techniques, but when I run a brainstorming session, I will get individuals to write down ideas on their own first because what this does is it tends to move away from the dominant voice. You know, often there's a dominant voice, Mm. and it may not be because, you know, they've got the biggest ego in the room. They're just very enthusiastic. They've got ideas to contribute, but potentially somebody who's a bit more introverted is going to sit there and not say anything their ideas are just as valid. So what we do is we get people to write down all their ideas individually first and then as a group you discuss those ideas which again invites 
an open conversation and invites mm. contribution from everybody. So everybody has to put forward what their ideas are and then collectively that group will vote on the ones that they next want to discuss and we'll go back into, a, into an individual session again. So here's the top three ideas that came out of that discussion. Now let's write down our thoughts around those top three ideas, for example. Um, and then we'll go back into a group discussion. So where I agree that, that brainstorming in its traditional form may not be the best way to solve problems, convergent thinking for me is not the best way to, ha- uh, to come up with solutions. And, and I agree that uh, it's the silly ideas that some people come up with. Whilst that might be a silly idea, it, it gets the thinking of someone else in the room to come up with a different tangent on that that could be just the solution they're looking for. That's correct. And the other thing we, we um, encourage people to do is to think big, think no constraints, budget's not there, you know, personnel's not there. It's just go way out there with the idea. And, you know, that is a very difficult thing for people to do. They can't actually let go of constraints, whereas mm. sometimes it's really easy to think big and then put the constraints around it where it's not as easy, like it's not as easy to come up with a solution when you're constrained in your thinking. So we really encourage people to go out there and do, you know, the pie in the sky, the rainbow, the world's your oyster, whatever you want to call it, it really doesn't matter. But lose the constraints first because we are so good at putting the constraints back on an idea, Mm. that won't be a problem at the end of the day. You know, think big and let's make that work into reality. As you say, you can put the constraints on at the end. Yeah, and you, you all can always pair things back. But to get people to expand their thinking, to come up with some really, you know, amazing ideas. I mean, how silly would it have sounded for, for someone to go, hey, we really need to pay the rent next, next week. Oh, we've got three, you know, air mattresses here. Oh, what if we give them this as well? And we'll call it Airbnb um, and we'll build a one-page website and all of a sudden there's three people knocking on your door with next week's rent, you know. Mm. That must have sounded crazy at some point in time. To, you know, even the internet would have sounded crazy. Oh, that definitely would have sounded crazy. And talking about, you know, craziness as in landing on the moon or flying to Mars and knowing you're on a one-way ticket and you're never coming back. I mean, how mad is that? Mm. Or exciting, whichever way you want to look at it. Well, thanks very much for that. And uh, we'll have a chat with you again next week. Look forward to it. I'll talk to you then. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina there with, yeah, making your brainstorming work. It is a great way of coming up with ideas, isn't it? Time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. Uh, I really like this one. The trick to reading a book a week. Reading non-fiction books is one of the best ways to stay engaged with the newest thinking in your field. But how can you make time for reading if your schedule is already overloaded? Understand that you don't need to read a non-fiction book cover to cover to learn from it. You can actually absorb just as much if you approach it in a different way. Start with the author bio to get a sense of the person's bias and perspective. Read the title, the subtitle, the front flap and the table of contents. What's the big picture argument? Read the introduction and the conclusion word for word, but quickly. Then skim each chapter. End with the table of contents to summarise the main points in your head. When you're actively engaged with the material in this way, your mind is more alert and able to retain a great deal of the information. So a fantastic way of gaining knowledge. Of course, another way to do that is that there are a lot of book reviews out there where they sometimes summarise a 150 or 200 page book in just eight pages.
what about this one? Build a passionate company. To build a business, a great business, companies need a purpose, one that transcend, transcends the traditional bottom line. People want to be passionate about their work and they want to be surrounded by others who feel the same. But how can managers actually foster passion? Well, here are five ways. First of all, let people show their emotions. If you ask your people to check their emotions at the door, you can't tap into their passion. Secondly, hire passionate people. One way to get passionate people in your organisation is to insensitise current employees to refer people that they want to work with. Thirdly, fan the flames. Find plenty of ways to celebrate joint accomplishments. Then, don't stifle your rock stars. Give your people the autonomy to do the work that interests them most. Finally, share context. Connect job functions to the organisation's broader mission and remind people why they do what they do. And then we'll have a fun organisation. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at copyright law and the uh, challenges there. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll visit the tax world again with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants. We'll have our minute on innovation with Christina and, of course, some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for Business, the Law and You at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Tony Robbins once said, there is a powerful driving force inside every human being that, once unleashed, can make any vision, dream or desire a reality. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com. <laughs>